this is Dana Carvey, and you're listening to Suckatash, the comedy podcast podcast. Hit me. From Studio P in Sausalito, the home of the hit, it's time for... Suckatash. The number one comedy podcast about comedy. Podcast. And here's your host, internationally recognized comedy podcast podcaster, Mark Hershaw. Yes, it's your old pal Mark Hershaw here with Epi 58 of Suckatash, the comedy podcast podcast. Welcome back, or if this is your first time passing the Succotash, glad to have you with us. Usually, our format tends to be me playing clips from a bunch of podcasts from around the interwebs, and I do mean from around the World Wide Web. We've played slices of shows from Australia to Ireland, and from Canada to Peru. Of course, the main bunch of dirt in the middle there, that's the United States, which is where we are, and where a lot of the other podcasts originate from, but I try not to play favorites. Actually, I do play favorites because a lot of the podcasts we end up clipping turn out to be favorites. Sometimes they're not the funniest or the slickest produced shows around, but the comedy podcasters themselves, by and large, are a great bunch of men and women. Most of us do this without a whole lot of money, if any, or thanks, and podcasting represents a huge chunk of free entertainment. So do what you can to show your appreciation for these shows. Go up to iTunes and rate the shows you like. Give them a review, or if you listen on Stitcher, give those shows you're enjoying a thumbs up, because those ratings count in our little world, a little world of over a 100,000 different podcasts. And just like the shows themselves, giving us your ratings, reviews, and blessings don't cost you a dime. This week, I only have a few clips in the chamber, because the bulk of Epi 58 is going to be a chunk of road talk between me, Dana Carvey, who you heard at the top of the show, and San Francisco comedian Larry Bubbles Brown, who you'll hear right now. Hey, Larry Brown here, and I'm listening to Succotash, the comedy podcast podcast. More on our road trip in just a bit, but first, let's attend to business. I can't let a show go by without mentioning our friends in podcasting, Dean Haglin and Phil Ernest from the Chill Pack Hollywood Hour podcast. Now, Dean's an actor, a comedian, a painter, and a bit of a dandy. Phil's a film director, a producer, a violence prevention specialist, and a fop. Together, they've racked up over six years of podcasting merriment, and we've, uh, for the last couple months, been uh, tossing mentions of our show back and forth. So, uh, well, I got a call from Phil just this week. Hello, Mark Hershon. This is your friend in podcasting, Phil Lairness, co-host of your Chill Pack Hollywood Hour. I'm dropping you a line to let you know how much I enjoyed the Epi 357 especially the whole discussion about pour-over coffee in Tulsa. Also, I think I can help you with something. In Epi 357, you lamented the fact that your landlord won't let you pay rent with mentions on the show and that your gas station won't let you fill up your tank in exchange for mentions on the show. I can't help you with your landlord, not yet anyway, but I might just be able to help you with your car's gas tank. You see, your Chill Pack Hollywood Hour is brought to you each week by Empire State Gas, the largest independently owned gas station chain east of the Mississippi. Their gas is organically grown, and right now, anyone who mentions succotash at the pump will fill up their tanks absolutely free. Empire State Gas, from farm to pump, They've got great gas. 
follow Empire State Gas on Twitter at Empire State Gas. And enjoy your Chill Pack Hollywood Hour each and every week at chillpackhollywood.com. That's C-H-I-L-L-P-A-K, hollywood.com. So that was Phil calling into the Succotash hotline, but their show itself sounds a little more like this. It's our sixth anniversary show. (laughs) Oh, those guys. They've got a website chillpackhollywood.com and chillpack uh, as was spelled there by Phil is C-H-I-L-L-P-A-K they're on iTunes, Stitcher, Jackalope Radio and a bunch of other outlets so track them down, download them and put them out of their misery by giving them the pomp and circumstance they deserve and, and do tell them that Mark sent you won't you? And that he's really sorry that he keeps thinking that it's just four years that they've been podcasting. Now it's time for the 10 most active shows in the Stitcher Top 100 Comedy Podcast List. Here at Succotash, we largely ignore the top 10 shows on Stitcher's Top 100 Comedy Podcast because... Well, basically, they never change. Instead, here's a look at your top 10 most active in the Stitcher Top 100 comedy podcast list, as sung by our jingle singers. Last week, there were some massive swings, shows moving up and down the chart by, in some cases, hundreds of places, which I now think, seeing the chart this week, may have been a bit of an error on Stitcher's part, because that was crazy. I mean, 100, 200 uh, moves up and down the chart, and uh, nothing close to that this week. So either someone was doing some housekeeping or uh, somebody moved a decimal point last week. I'm not sure what happened. So this week, not so much in the way of changes, but uh, still uh, fairly significant down below uh, number 10. Uh, At 14, the Smodcast, Jay and Silent Bob Get Old, up 21 points or places. At 17, the Duncan Trussell Family Hour, up 30 at 39, by the way, in conversation with Jeff Garland, down 15 places. At 43, oh uh, yeah, dude, up 20. At 51, the Onion Radio News, down 15 places. At 61, off the air with Chick McGee, down 11. At 68, the Todd Glass Show, up 12. At 83, about last night, is down 23 places. At 97, who's paying attention, has gone up 15 places. And at 99... Uh, Just down there at the bottom, just above number 100, the Dead Authors Podcast, down 23. And that's it for the 10 most active shows in the Stitcher Top 100 Comedy Podcast List. Okay, so I've got the Dana Carvey Road Talk recording coming up. But before we get to that, I have got to play at least a, a, a couple or a few comedy podcast clips. I mean, just to keep us legit. We are the comedy podcast podcast after all, right? So first up is the Craig Shoemaker Show. I had an interview with Craig back in Epi 29, back when he was playing in San Francisco last summer. Man, that was almost a year ago now. So high time we pay a quick visit to the Love Master on his show, which is also known as Laugh It Off, kind of a healing through laughter philosophy. He is also joined by comedian Sarah Sweet and sidekick slash barista Joel Geist. Here's a funny clip from a recent show where Craig is talking about how he likes to record his encounters whenever he gets pulled over by the police for traffic stops, and we get to hear one. So the cop pulls me over, and I start the recording. This is what I do lately. 
I record it because I want, uh, if I go to the judge, I want him to be able to hear my arguments. Oh, and my this, dad does that. Shit. <laughs> <laughs> Basically, what Sarah was just saying, if I could translate for you, shit, I was hoping you weren't like my dad. Yes. I, I always make you into my dad, and now you're becoming him again. This is another example he, he of how you're like my dad. confrontationally. He'll put it out of the oh, window for the, so the cop here knows what he's doing, and he's like, go ahead. And now she's going to call me passive-aggressive. <laughs> That's her favorite word that she calls me if I disagree with her. You're passive-aggressive. Do you All put right. it where they can see it? Do they know you're recording? This one I did not. Yeah. But I, I actually have said to the people, I won one time in court against a really tough guy. As a matter of fact, they go, it was in Malibu, and they said, you know they, how they come in, they go, the, he's not here, the cop's not here, so you can go. So they have this whole list of people. And it was like, it was unbelievable. It was like, uh, it was like watching Lost. All of a sudden, people are disappearing. <laughs> and, and it was like, oh, my God, it's unbelievable. And my guy was, the, they, they, I said, what about my guy? They go, oh, no, he always shows up. Oh. Well, he didn't know who he was messing with. <laughs> Do you know what it said on the ticket that I got him on? I was my own lawyer. It said, uh, this, this guy, meaning me, is a prick. Oh. <laughs> and then so I confronted him. I go, what exactly did you mean by that? Did I say anything mean-spirited? I was just trying to tell you what the truth was. And it was going on. And finally, I had this guy sweating. He was wrong. And the judge went, you can go. <laughs> the judge was like, he had it with me. I know a lot of people have had it with me. <laughs> I understand this. I understand. I'm annoying. I'm an, I, when I want to be right, I, I listen. I am not that unaware that I can be uh, vehement, passionate, whatever you want to call it, obnoxious, where you can wander all different places. Play the tape. Play the tape. Here it is. All right, here. All right. We're stopped here. Can you hear We're it? stopping a number of people. And then back here. There was only one sign for the right turn. I'm trying to just so, now here comes the officer. How you doing? Hello, sir. You have your license, registration, insurance? Yeah. Oh. Can I, can I just have 30 seconds to speak <laughs> about what happened? Can I just have 30 seconds to speak sure. to you? Okay. Um, I'm trying to be of service here. I just picked him up uh, from the airport to, to, for his father's an old friend from Philly. I'm rushing him over to rehab, and I don't take the street. So suddenly, it's not marked well. You all of a sudden, bam! There's a right turn. Uh, you can go back and see for yourself. Play it. I'm really going Okay, I got to get over now because it's a right turn only. Put my signal on, as we all do. Suddenly, I'm presented with this. And this guy sped up to cut me off, and I went, uh-oh. So I did the best I could. So it wasn't like I was trying to violate a law or anything. I wasn't trying to get over. I was literally, like, all of a sudden, I'm in a right turn lane. And this guy, I tried to point him out really quickly. He cut me off on purpose because he probably thought that I was pulling the fast one, but that's not what I was doing. I'm just trying to get him up to this place called The Hills to get him into rehab. I'm just trying to do a good service. Okay, and I understand all that. <laughs> but that lane is clearly broken. When you first enter it, it gives you time to get out of it. There's, you see the lines are broken. There's a, there's a, a sign saying right turn only. There's three signs total. Yeah, and the second okay. I saw the sign, the second I saw it, I tried to get over, and the guy literally sped up, right? Sped up to try to cut me off, right? I'm just trying to tell you. I mean, I know this is. I, I, tickets are basically a punishment. Not be punished for something. No, no, no. But not I'm, necessarily, it's not a punishment. Wants to teach me a lesson or whatever the reason is. But I've learned a lesson. Of, 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 
I was suddenly, I mean, you've been in a situation when you drive, it's like somebody cutting you off. I was a jerk. I had my cell phone, and I'm trying to be a law-abiding guy. I actually work for the police often. And, and so, you, you know, you, I'm just asking you to just please, you know, just know that I understand what you're doing, and, you know, and I, I, but I wasn't doing anything intentionally illegal. I did the best that I possibly right. could. And I'm Have trying to get, one. thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Have a good one. Wow. You got off? <laughs> I got off. You just talk until they walk away, don't you? That's your tactic. I realized this wasn't playing. I should never have played that. That's a very, very... That is so funny. It's a though. bad testimony about who my character. <laughs> you can enjoy more of The Love Master at craigshoemakershow.com, iTunes, and Stitcher Smart Radio. I've taken to skimming the new podcasts that are coming up on iTunes comedy listings in search of new shows I've heard nothing about yet. This week turned up an old acquaintance. When I first met him, I was running the Comedy Underground Improv Group at the San Francisco Punchline on Monday nights, and Mark Thompson was doing the weather at Cron TV in town. Uh, he was friends with Will Durst, the very same guy who does our Bursto Durst every week, and his wife Debbie, who was in our troupe. So Mark would drop in as our guest host every once in a while. He does TV and voiceover out of L.A. now, but has, uh, uh, as of about a dozen or so episodes ago, flipped the switch on The Edge podcast. Heather Ankeny is his co-pilot, and in the most recent episode, his guest was the very funny Caprice Crane, who is a TV writer and author, and her parents were pretty well-known folks. Her dad was broadcaster Les Crane, and Mom, well, let's hear Caprice tell it. Now, your mother is a famous actress, probably one of the iconic actresses of 60s and 70s television. Your mother played Ginger in Gilligan's Island. She did, beautifully. Yeah, I mean, she she was actually I, one of my three favorite characters on the show. I love the skipper. I love Ginger. Okay. There's okay. only six characters on the show, and you picked 50% No, there are three of funny. There are three funny ones. Okay, Josh, there are three funny ones. And here they are. Jim Backus was funny. And Ginger was funny, and um, oh, oh, Skipper, because when Skipper's when Skipper's flirting with your mom, it's the best part of the show, <laughs> because Skipper's always trying to endear himself to Ginger, and he, it was just the best part of the show. He was so sweet too. What a love. Alan Hale. Yeah. He was a really terrific guy. I have a memory of being at the Macy's Day Parade in New York, and he put me on his shoulders, and he was just so sweet. And Natalie Schaefer was amazing too. She was lovey. She was literally her character in real life. And she, we knew her for the rest of her life. And she would, we would have a big Christmas party every year. And she never learned how to drive in her whole life. So we always had to send a car for Natalie. <laughs> That's so cool. That's fantastic. I love that. <laughs> when you were growing up, that show was basically in reruns, like every day on TV. It was in reruns, yeah. It was before I was born, and it was in reruns. And, and for my whole life, even, like, it was still in reruns. Every day, always. Was that always part of your life? Was Gilligan's Island the world of it? Or was it like, was there a disconnect between when you started seeing the show and that's my mom? No, I mean, I, I mean, I didn't, because I didn't sit around and watch the show. Yeah, so it, wasn't it wasn't fascinating to you that no, your mom was on TV? No, because I grew up with, it, the, all of my friends also had parents on TV. Oh, okay. Cool. Or, or musicians. Right. For example? Um, I mean, Natalie Wynn, Robert Wagner, I grew up with their kids um that's a pretty good genetic experiment too sean, yes um sean cassidy uh donna summer tony bennett Cher, um richard pryor um you were friends with chastity then i chastity. was friends with chastity are you friends with Chaz? 
I'm not friends with Chaz. Mm. Um, and I wasn't friends with, I, actually, I shouldn't say that. I wasn't, I, I knew Chaz. That, they, those were the not, people in your parents' world. She was mm. not, no, they weren't in my parents' world. They were, we went to school together. Oh, I got you. Mm. Chastity was a few years older than me. And I always, and she was mean. I hate to say it, but she wasn't, she wasn't nice to me. And I remember she was always, she kept to herself. And, and, uh, and one time I went up to her when I was little and I, I was kind of, I was kind of shy, but I felt bad for her. And I said, I just said, you know, you're always by yourself. And I just wanted, you to know, if you wanted, you know, I'll be your friend. Aww. And she said, I don't need friends. Oh, Clearly wow. she did. <laughs> and then she shivved you right there. Basically. Yeah. But everybody else, everybody else's kids were nice. So that, what, a, what a constellation of people you just mentioned. I don't even know where to start with that. So who did you hang out with? Who were your hangout friends? I mean, did... I mean my best friends were, were Natalie Wood and Robert Wagner's kids. My, and and my... who are Natalie Wood and Robert Wagner's kids? It's Courtney, Natasha, and Katie. Uh-huh. And Natasha was my friend. It was me, Natasha, Tracy, Jessica. Tracy's mom was Gloria. Do you remember in The Odd Couple, the one who threw out Felix in the beginning, like the arm that comes that out? Oh, yeah. and then wife, like, yeah. That was Tracy, yes. Oh, the that's cool. with, that was Tracy's mom. Jessica, um, her mom was Ann Pennington, who was a playmate, and her dad was Sean Cassidy. Oh, yeah. Our friend Michelle was a, was a, a Walt Disney was her grandfather. Oh, boy. Jeez. Um, they were like my, my initial Your crew. Tight friends. Yeah. yeah. And what did you, what did you crazy kids and do? Joanna. Well, I'm not looking for crazy stories. I'm going to kind of get a sense of your, the beat of your life at that time of what, of a kid in Hollywood hanging with that crowd. I'm just I'll curious. Tell you, you know what? It wasn't, that's the thing. Like we didn't, I, I, I don't know what they thought, but for me, it wasn't, I didn't know any better. I thought everyone's parents were on television or making records. Sean's Cassidy's mom was was the Partridge family mom. <laughs> His stepmom, I guess. Right? Yeah. So it's like that was a grandma. Right. Was like on TV too. So it was like I I literally it wasn't until I probably was in high school that I no, I mean earlier than that, but I thought that was just what you do when you grow up. You go on TV or you make records or so it wasn't like I thought we were any different or Right. No, I'm not suggesting that you thought you were different or that there was that, that so we're, you know, we, we, bro- life was normal. I mean, life was, we were kids like any other kid. Although, um, we did, we did a little, we did stalk one celebrity, <laughs> Rick Springfield. Of course. <laughs> that is every person's fantasy. Right? And then he said, I don't need any friends. <laughs> No, we were seriously in love with Rick Springfield. That's Mark Thompson with The Edge, which I will also be reviewing his show on Splitsider.com for this week in comedy podcasts this week. So you can find it there. Uh, And also you can hear more of his show at edge-show.com, iTunes, and Stitcher Smart Radio. This is Travis Clark. And Brandy Clark. From Tiny Tiny Odd Conversations. Conversations. And you're listening to Suckatash. The comedy podcast podcast. Well done. Speaking of Splitsider.com, they have their own comedy podcast network over there. Sure, I review comedy podcasts for them. I feature comedy podcasts on my show. But do they want Succotash on their network lineup? No. Why? I don't know. Something about not enough listeners. Anyway, one of their shows is You Had to Be There, hosted by Sarah Schaefer and Nikki Glazer. Both very funny. And this week, they had two other very funny people guesting, Jim and Jeannie Gaffigan. Yes, we heard the Gaffigans last episode here when I featured a clip from the Todd Berry Show. Well, they're back. Still funny, talking this time about fame and Taylor Swift, or rather, Taylor Swift's fame. It's interesting how, I mean, Taylor is, not that I know anything about her, but 
I mean, she is like huge, huge, huge. Like She's it's the biggest. It's going to transcend yeah. unless she completely self-destructs, which it doesn't appear like she has that type of personality. No. I mean, she's a creator. She's not some some manufactured thing. No. So right. in 40 years, she's going to be like Barbara Streisand, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Definitely. She's, it's not going anywhere. She made a million dollars a week last year. She made $54 million. Oh, I did too. That's so weird. Isn't that funny? A million dollars a week? Where More is that? Wow. million dollars that you yeah. made wow. last year. She, she made $54 million last year. I mean, this I, like that's why you know we kind of left feeling, like you said, I feel small. I and felt I was small. Like, she was just yeah. so, and she was such a nice, normal person. It made yeah. it made me even more like jealous of her because I was like, right. oh, and you're just like great. Some yeah. people you know? are just <laughs> so like I would never want to. I mean, this sounds like rationalizing, but I would never want to be that big because some of the stuff that's like thrown at her yeah. and and Anne Hathaway, I'm She's like, really why are you guys going? Yeah. And and I know that some of it's fun, right? Mm-hmm. But Taylor Swift, it's like. Like, she will never be able to go into a Subway restaurant and buy a sandwich in peace, I right? I think about that all the time. Yeah. Like, she never, yeah. I, well, when you, I, you know, I think about, like, maybe reaching a level of fame where it's, like, you get recognized. And I'm like, I can't, like, eat at Subway anymore. Because it's, like, you don't see celebrities at Subway. Yeah. But I love Subway. Yeah. And, like, you... I don't know. I it, it'd be weird to like, or at like a gas station buying like a hot dog. Like you can't do that stuff. Anymore. Like it'd be weird for she, could, she can't. Do she that can't do all. that. So you be can't. Like, you can't walk around like without makeup on because no. you'll be like, yeah. oh look at here she is without makeup, yeah. just like us. Yeah. You can't. It's weird. Do I wonder. That. You know, if you guys ever have her on the show, you have to. Because there is something I don't want to sp- point out anyone in particular, but there are comedians that we know that we're friends with that are really successful that really have to take like a town car everywhere because mm-hmm. they can't take the subway. Yeah, and you're like, wow, I don't know if I would want that. I know I thought about that because Nikki and I haven't really we've been re- we were recognized at the Taylor Swift concert because we were like, like in the our first demo. time. Yeah, we like, were. Yeah. It was Swimming like our, our demo. demo. Yeah, um, but you know and. I think we've probably been recognized, but people have in New York. People don't bug you, right. um, you know. I know you probably get recognized, you know, if you're walking down like McDougal on a Friday too, night. So there's gonna be guys too. that are like, Jim, you yeah, know, like, yeah, yeah. My parents recognized you. I once in San Francisco on the oh, street, really? yeah. And I yelled Gaffigan, and you just like gave a wave. It was very you, nice. you were in San Francisco, yeah, and I walked by. I was I was with my parents, but my dad was like, "There's Jim Gaffigan," and I was like, "Gaffigan," and you like gave a wave. Oh, that's so funny. They uh, still talk about it too. Yeah. They're like so excited. I'm good about friends it. with your parents. <laughs> you have to be there to hear. You had to be there at you had to be there podcast splitsider.com, iTunes, or Stitcher Smart Radio. All right, I'm going to pop the top on this road trip recording of Dana Carvey, San Francisco veteran comedian Larry Bubbles Brown, and me. There's actually less of me than anyone else on this recording, mainly because I was doing the driving from Medford, Oregon to Redding, California, while Dana and Larry were playing at theaters at both of those locations. So Dana ends up mostly interviewing Larry about his career. And there's way too much John Wayne going on, which you'll understand as we get into this. Now, I cleaned up the audio as much as I could, but the sound levels, quite frankly, are crap. And it's a little hard to hear, so hopefully you can hang through this. 
I'm going to pause halfway through this inter interview chat. I'm not exactly sure how to classify what you're about to hear, uh, but we're going to get into the tweet sack. We'll take care of some other business. I'll give you a break from this. Uh, again, apologies, the bad audio, but then we'll jump back in and catch up on the rest of it. Don't forget also that we've got our burst of durst at the other end too. But in the meantime, here's Dana Carvey, Larry Brown, and me. So what was the date of your first day of stand-up? March 3rd, 81. What was the weather? It was uh, San Francisco springy, kind of a little cloudy, not definitely didn't rain. How long did you think about doing your first set before you did your first set? Uh, a full year. I went down to the uh, lunch line in February of 80, saw my first open mic. I just went in thinking, oh, these guys haven't been on TV. It's going to suck. And there was like, I saw some really good comics. I saw Pritchard and Slayton and Jeremy Kramer. And I was kind of blown away. Uh -huh. So I just kept going back every Sunday night. And just, I just watched these guys. And then after about 10 months, I started to sign up. And I, I didn't get onto the punchline. So someone said, the Holy City Zoo is the best place to go. So I went over there and got on. And you didn't have to pay? You didn't have to wait? Or? No, I didn't have to wait. And I met Billy Jay, and he actually uh, he got me a good spot. But back then, the Holy City Zoo, but if you signed up, everyone got on. Yeah. They'd go till 2 in the morning, and sometimes they put up 35 comics. Do you remember anyone who was on that first show with you? Steve Kravitz, who was doing his first set, went on right after him. Really? What was your first joke? My first joke was... They said it's a joke that's similar to one Carlin had. I said, wow, I almost didn't make it here tonight. I was in a freak accident. I ran over a dwarf. It's <laughs> funny. And all these comments give me, no, you should change that to, I ran into a van full of pinheads and midgets. <laughs> yeah, learning the art of tagging. Or... Well, dwarf, pretty good. Well, yeah. Well, we're hitting some chop. Yeah. For me being a nervous patch, it's hard for me to be witty and glib, you know, with slick roads and rain and high speeds with uh, people texting all around us and narrow roads. Hard for me to be glib and pithy <laughs> right now. I'm, more, I'm a bad passenger. Hershon's a very good driver. I'm just a bad. Very good driver. I'm very always driver. trying to create very space. Good. Like right now, I'm comfortable. I won't be as comfortable next to that rig. You know, maybe I need therapy. I need control issues. Larry, have you always had a, a this? Uh, I don't know if it's a gift or whatever this is about being able to know dates and stuff. I never really thought about it until someone, when Rain Man came out, someone said, "Oh, the guys just like you." I never see the movie, and I thought, oh. "Is that a compliment?" <laughs> but he was much better than me. But. Out is that a truth? I can't remember if this was true or not. Did you actually get hit by lightning when you were a kid? Yeah, I got hit or crazed uh, back in Ohio when I was a teenager. See uh, those big electrical storms back there? And I think it was July. Huh. It was either the 11th or 18th, 1966. I'm pretty sure it was the day the newlywed game debuted. I remember that. <laughs> Look that up. Like a superhero. <laughs> and then did you get any kind of powers from that strike? 
It just barely the power to remember dates. Yeah, I mean that's what I'm thinking. Yeah, that's what it, it rearranged your brain so you can yeah. Do you know any dates specifically before that that occurred to you? <laughs> uh, June 23rd, 63, when I was like uh, uh, a kid, I got a home run ball in Cincinnati hit by my childhood hero, which I still have, Beta Vincent. That was a Sunday. Lining. My mother told me to go upstairs and close this window because a big storm was coming. As soon as I started to close the window, the lightning, it hit the metal around the window. Uh-huh. Just like knocked me back like 15 feet. My hair was all frizzed back. And really? To the, I think that's where I got this tinnitus because I still had it ringing in my ears. It was the loudest thing I ever heard. I just remember it was white, this huge explosion. And you were in your house next to a window? I was closing the window, yeah. And it hit the, the wow. metal around the window. How often did that happen? Usually when you think of people out on a golf course or something. Apparently, back in Ohio, a kid I went to high school with was on a golf course. He got hit and that got pretty badly burned. But you don't have much uh, lighting in California. Right. That's why it's fun to fly into Ohio in August. No. So you remember your first set. Do you remember the first time you saw Dana? Uh, so you were 83 or 2 when you started? 81. Oh, 81. Okay. So I might have been come back from New York. I think you, were, you weren't around a lot. I did. I worked with you and Rick Schrader in May of 84. You come back to LA. And you, you met us in Berkeley and we drove up to Vallejo. Yes. There wasn't a big crowd. And you were getting a lot of money. And the, the guy that worked was freaking out. You told him Rick and I got paid. He didn't have to pay you, and they just canceled the show. Jeez. So, it sounded yeah. like I was pretty nice. Yeah, you were very nice. <laughs> Did I ask you what your resting pulse was? <laughs> no, but you didn't tell me. I think you had a hot. The car you had in LA, you said it got so hot that the rear window heated up and blew out. What well, melted my guitar? Yeah. Yeah. Basically melted my guitar. Wow. Yeah. That, that rings a bell. Well, I was in and out. You know, I was doing shows, you know, like one of the I boys. Doing, I think you would wrapped up Blue Thunder. Yeah, so I was making abnormal money, but, but I was still going back and forth a lot to do the clubs in, in uh, San Francisco. Uh-huh. But I wasn't living there full time after 81, but I go back and forth. And then, uh, yeah, you were, that's when the comedy boom was really starting to go, and everyone was talking about you and uh, Bobcat, and then you Great and him did a show at the like, Circle Star, that I wasn't there, but people that went there said it was the best show they ever saw, and Alex Mena presents. That was one of the best sets I ever had, but I was able to be, I, yeah, Bobcat people were talking about that like a week later, remember, oh my god, card was unbelievable. I was lucky because Bob, Bobcat had clothes, and I got in the yeah, sweet spot. Yeah, you did half an hour? Yeah, I was able to just do 30, and I was in shape then. I'd done a lot of stand-up. Um, yeah. Did you ever play there? It's cool theater. Yeah, I never went in there. I always wanted to see that. I heard they had the revolving stage. Yeah. That's where I, uh, where I saw Rich Little. 
uh, when he was doing uh, Columbo, and that's when uh, I was in the audience when Pollock got up. Oh, you were there? Yeah. Wow. Oh, before you knew him? Yeah. Well, wow. that's before he did comedy. He just he showed up and he was, yeah. had the trench coat. He had the trench coat and walk, approached the stage doing his Columbo impression. Seventeen or something. Yeah, Kevin was. Yeah, he was supernatural. And the uh, Little invited him on stage to do dueling Columbos with him. <laughs> God, I saw Rich Little at the Circle Star Theater as well. And I smuggled in a small tape recorder. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. Oh, funny. To record him, you know, because it wasn't the web. And I yeah. guess you record him on TV as well, but. So how, how many did that room see? I think it was three. If it did in the round, they could do a three-quarter setup, which I think Bennett did, I'm sure. And the stage slowly rotated. Yeah. Is that weird? Um, that performer said it was disorienting. I saw Rickles there with Ed Sullivan in the front row, and he was merciless, you know, to Ed Sullivan. Wow, really? <laughs> And then um, I guess it was Rickles' birthday or Ed Sullivan's birthday. They brought a cake, and then Ed Sullivan went up there after Rickles did his entire act just shitting on Ed Sullivan. And Ed Sullivan, and I, I'm just 10 years old, just blown away. Look at these guys. And he just said, quote, Don Rickles, you can kiss my ass. <laughs> and it was just bedlam. <laughs> you know? That's hilarious. Yeah. Investors in the Circle Star, or no, I think Sinatra was Frank and, Frank and Sammy. <laughs> Is that right? Yeah. It was just so funny because it was in my hometown and it was the big kind of go to theater in the Bay Area, I think. I mean, there'd be the Fairmont in San Francisco, yeah. but if you were a big comedian, you would play the Circle Star. Oh, yeah, you know, and the music acts too. It's a weird industrial location. Yeah, yeah. It was just down by the 101 freeway, and it was just out of the blue, just, just there. I mean, probably Sinatra just decided, you know, put it in a parking lot, basically. But it was real show business. Man, it was magic. The lights would go down. They'd have the full orchestra. Ladies and gentlemen, it would be like Smothers Brothers or Olivia Newton-John. I saw a couple other people there over the years. I think I saw Cosby there. Kenny Rankin was sick, so Carlin had no opener. So he, Carlin, did 45 or so, and then took a, everyone took a break, and then he came uh, out again. Wow. Yeah. So if you were recording Rich Little and stuff, were you doing impressions at the very start of your act, uh, when you started doing stand-up? Yes. Okay. Not exclusively. Yeah. But I learned to do Jimmy Stewart by watching him, and then I watched It's a Wonderful Life, and so that was a good, you know. Oh, okay. That's the only old-time impression I still do, and it's interesting because it, he lasted because of It's a Wonderful Life, period. So even teenagers know it. Well, I mean, they asked for it last night. It yeah. Amazing. Yep. <laughs> and so I did a small theater in Connecticut. You would have loved Larry. You know, it was like 500 seats, just like rock and roll crowd. And this... 18 year old came up, up to me afterwards and said, Hey, you did the It's a Wonderful Life guy. <laughs> so, really? Yeah, you did the It's a Wonderful Life guy. So you went into your Clarence impression. <laughs> yeah. My 
Mr. Potter. <laughs> so eventually this would just be live streaming globally right now? Uh, yeah, 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 we'll be long. This is what Seinfeld does, right? Comedians uh, in cars. Andy Blumenthal does the same thing. He drives around Hawaii with a guy in the car. He's got nine of these GoPros. Nine, around okay. the cameras, in the cars, so he's got all these different angles. And then he just, does he edit it down to like a 12-minute yes. digestible? It doesn't show hours, right? Uh, it's an interview, so it runs 20 minutes, sometimes a half hour. Drive, just drives around the island. Huh. This might be funny to do one just parked, you know. Let's just call it comedians in parked cars. Or how about comedians in traffic and literally just find rush hours? Just in traffic somewhere. Well, I think when Norm flies across country, like tweets every minute, people follow that. Are you able? They let you do that, I guess now. Yeah, some of the some of the jets have uh, Wi-Fi. And is he tweeting that he's anxious, or is he tweeting that it's just fun up in the airplane? He usually just tweets golf. Just like literally, he'll watch a golf tournament and just tweet like a play-by-play of who's doing what. Norm is definitely an eccentric person. (laughs) Fascinating. I guess I'll go on that show Uh, just to hang out with him. Yeah. He has a, a permanent kind of. Mysterious uh, grin on his face. Yeah. Which is part of his charm. Why don't you, uh, why don't you go on and ask one of the diamonds? Because he Well, I'll, yeah, I'll give my whole 5,000 mini diets. I was thinking of tweeting that. Oh, it's just that everyone that. thinks that the bottom number and the top number is the key number that no one has. Yeah. What? Yes, you get inside your yoga, and then your whole goal is not to go above the top number. I'll try to solve his weight problem within one minute. So I'll say, I need one minute so that you'll, you'll be 10% body fat in six months. If you give me one minute. <laughs> That's the other thing. Since those two books that we've worked on, you know, just, yeah. just for fun, just to, uh, if on a Facebook page, just sort of lay them out with maybe a few little rewrites and just yeah. release them as whatever. E-books. We can do those e-books. Yeah, because then it's like, why should they just sit there? Kind of funny. So, Mark, did you see uh, Marty Allen? I did not. Did you see it? No, I wish I could. I was working that night, but just the fact he's 91 and doing stand up was amazing. Yeah, I was uh, not, not around. So I, yeah. I had lunch with him and his wife in Pitta in Vegas. Yeah, two months ago. I mean, he must be pretty sharp mentally, right? Oh, yeah, totally. And when he married her, he was in his 60s, I think. He said to her, show business is my entire life. And she said she didn't believe it, but it is his entire <laughs> life. But, I mean, literally, beginning, middle, and end. Wow. It was a movie moment that he just, he's just still just naturally funny. When he left the hotel, he had a cane because he had some hip replacement or whatever. So he says goodbye to Pitt and I turn source. He throws the cane away and starts to do like a soft shoe. It's this look on his face, which is right out of a movie. Wow. Yeah. Like this <laughs> defiance. But yeah, completely sharp. He goes, hello, star. <laughs> he said to me. <laughs> and the stories, they just, 
this, this, the stories about Rich Little, his former partner. His partner with Rich Little? No, but there's their, their friends with him, just all kinds of stories. Rich Little, I, I guess, bought California real estate because you know, of his first wife, and just incredibly rich. That'd be hilarious if we were doing this 35 years from now. <laughs> Can you imagine? Be an all electric vehicle. <laughs> yeah, computer driven car, completely. hologram on stage in Medford without leaving the comfort of your home. <laughs> that Hello. Hello, Modesto. In conversation with you, just in your house. Well, that'd be the ultimate. <laughs> yeah. An evening with hologram 319. <laughs> you know, a lot of performers may have, they're the kind of people that pre-record their holograms, but not me. I want to be there for you people. This is live. It's funny just sitting here knowing this is being recorded. It's definitely messing with your head. Maybe we'll get used to it. Because you're kind of thinking, well, for sure it'll get out somewhere. If it's even fucking the problem. Right. No way to even tell what he's going on. We've got more silences than that Lancaster Curtis submarine thing. <laughs> Everybody tap down. I said silence. The Japs are listening in. <laughs> Take her down. But, sir, we can't go. I said take her down. <laughs> Gotta love submarine movies. They're the best. Never yeah. any fear. Never any fear. There's leaks coming in. Take her down another thousand. Duke, she's gonna blow. She's gonna blow, Duke. The gaskets. Water's coming in. I said take her down. <laughs> it's, a, it's a great tribute to motion pictures and suspension of disbelief. Because you know. It's not a real submarine because they've got movie cameras in the thing. So, you know, it's just a cutaway on a soundstage somewhere. Even if you know very little right. about how movies are made, yet you can always get tense. Well, it's, just, it's also just the lack of fear. You're in a tin can that's about to explode, you know, a mile under the sea, and you're just completely defiant. I said, take her down. This whole head might explode in three seconds. Literally, not only no fear, but just anger at the concept that you'd have any anxiety at all. Aren't you worried, Duke? Worried about what? Take her down. <laughs> well, our, our heads might explode, Duke. Any second. I want to be John Wayne now. Yes. Simplicity, clarity, moral character. He has his values. He would have been a great stand-up. He had no fear. <laughs> yeah, and complete confidence. Well, you cannot laugh if you want. But I'm, you'll still be yourselves tomorrow. And I know where to find you, yaha. What if you're threatening us with physical harm? Well, I, whatever you want to hear, but that's what I'm saying. I know where you live, so go we ahead. Just, we just paid to see you. But Duke, we're mice red, Duke. We, we're just not finding it funny. You set up too fast. Well, I don't care what you think. I know where you live. So Cheese laughed his ass off at these jokes. <laughs> It's so funny, it's such an obscure uh, 
idea of doing doing anything and people understanding what you're even talking about. Well, just explaining it yeah. to young people that it was he was an iconic movie star for 40 years. He had a character of complete, never was afraid, ever. Always dominated completely. Um, I mean, he really was the Tom Cruise of his era. I guess so, even more. He was six foot four, oh, 280 yeah. pounds. With his cowboy hat, That's he was right. six nine. That's right. Yeah, he came across everyone on the screen. I mean, Dean Martin and his sons and Katie Alderman, it did look like a midget, literally. Yes. Like a tiny, shrunken person. <laughs> it was like a double human walking into the room. <laughs> you know, he could he just fit the room. And when he was in the saloon, it was like one elbow would hit one side of the room. It was like he was, he was Mickey Rooney in that Twilight Zone flick. And he made me big enough. <laughs> I said attack. But dude, there's 10,000 Indians, three of us. I said let's attack. But what we should die in his death within seconds, dude. I said attack, and I won't say it again. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, that that's what was fun. Okay, we're going to take a little rest stop here in order to get a little business out of the way. For the first time since we started Succotash over two years ago, we have a live spot for Henderson's Pants. Hello, friends. God, that sounds so cheesy when I say it. Bill really does carry it off, doesn't he? Anyway, friends, with the summer months just around the corner, that means nights spent with buddies, out under the stars, or sometimes just passed out next to your car. Whatever the occasion, it's always the right night for a pair of Henderson sleepover slacks. Whether you're crashing at a friend's place or getting your carnal fix with a one-night stand, Henderson sleepover slacks are just the ticket to making sure that you get just as good a night's sleep as you can while still waking up refreshed and raring to go. No matter if you're heading back to work or else making that walk of shame back home by the harsh but cleansing light of day. Sleepover Slacks features an outer layer that unzips to form a snug sleeping bag with a built-in eye shade so you can catch some extra winks. And there's a removable disposable inner liner that wicks away moisture and filth from your skin so you can unpeel it, throw it away, and face the world without needing a shower the next day. The nylon zipper doubles as a removable tooth and hairbrush, and the sleepover slacks double stitching can be plucked out a little bit at a time to be used as dental floss so that you're looking just as perky as can be for that big important meeting or for facing the spouse. What's more, Henderson's sleepover slacks are unisex, designed for both men and women who care to leave the very best impression when it comes to living indiscriminate lifestyles. Originally designed for train conductors, flight attendants, and United States congressmen, Henderson sleepover slacks are available wherever fine bedding or camping supplies are sold. That's Henderson's, letting you get into our pants since 1849. And now, back to Succotash. Friend of Succotash Jabs over at the D-Head Factor put together this amusing bit. Hi, this is Jabs from the D-Head Factor and also the writer and creator of the hit podcast, uh, Boganwood. And you're listening to... Get the fuck out of the way, you stupid cunt! Run out of fucking drive! Sorry, uh, you're listening to the... Fucking get off the road, then, you stupid cunt! Get out of the fucking way! Fucking idiot, stupid prick! Run out of fucking drive, you stupid cunt! The Succotash Show. It's Tweet Sack time. Time to see what kinds of tweets, retweets, DMs, emails, and postcards, if we got one, came in this week. 
First thing's an email from Monica Hamburg of the Dazed and Convicted podcast, longtime friend of Succotash and more vice of the versa with her podcast. Monica writes, Hi Mark, you mentioned on IPA, now that's the Independent Podcasters Association, or rather the page we have on Facebook, that if we have a really strong episode, we can ping you. And if you deem it worthy, it might make it as your choice for the Split Cider This Week in Comedy Podcasts column. I really do like the latest episode of Dazed and Convicted, which was released today. This was as of a couple of days ago. It may not be to your taste, we all have our own, but I figured I'd let you know about it. And then there's a a link to uh, their latest podcast. Thanks in general for all the support you've given me. All the best, Monica. Thanks, Monica. And as I told her in an email back... Uh, I had already selected Bark Thompson's The Edge podcast to review this week, but if she tries me again when she's got a really smoking epi about to drop, I'll do my best to post a review of it on Split Cider. This next thing is really Skype-related, whereas I ran into Davy and Dent from the Bitter Sound and Strange Times podcast on Skype last week, and we ended up having a lovely chat. Me in San Francisco, he in England, and he recorded it. I've no idea if it's anything he would want to use, but maybe you'll hear me on one of those podcasts. Really nice guy, as so many of the podcasters I get to talk to really are. I've got some other missives this week, but I really want to get back to this rolling chat with Dana and Larry. So let me get to the latest list of people that have given us some Twitter bandwidth this past week. D-Jam Master, Tyson Saner for multiple shout-outs, Shane Elliott, Jagged Podcasts, Lily Holliman, Captain Heck, Barker Podcast, Dead Men Walking, Thomas Jackson Jr., The Love Master, Utter Tosh Pod, also known as Uncle Arthur's Bollocks, John O'Dirty Kong, The Half Scoop, and Ty and Rocky K. Thanks again for listening and all your support. Now, let's get back on the road. The main reason I would like a movie is for people being fearless. It's kind of like in the... Sigourney Weaver in Aliens 2, when she's in the machine finally, after yes. an hour of the aliens terrorizing. Yeah. What did you say? Get away from her? Yeah, bit? yeah get away from her, you bitch. Just complete defiance. <laughs> why else would you see movies? You know? I guess that's the, the, the intrigue of stand-up. It's so hard to so-called manhandle it if you do have fear. If you have no fear, you can't overcome it. Yeah. So it's actually good to actually... Tonight we'll manhandle them in Reading. <laughs> I don't care about silence. They like Lancaster when they run silent, run deep. We'll say what we want, they're gonna like it. <laughs> what do we care if they're not entertained? I'll slap the laughs out of them. We'll slap a laugh out, get their money, and get the hell on the road. Yeah, and he, all he did would put his hat in his hand at the end of the movie, and he'd kind of look down. He would say something nice for like 10 seconds uh-huh. after berating people for two hours. <laughs> well, Coach Cheese, maybe we can learn to live together, y'all, huh? Sort of like <laughs> Rickle's message of sincerity at the end yeah. of the set. <laughs> it was it did anyone else ever have the emotion maybe Larry when movies would end and they'd say at the end they'd be writing off just a sense of sadness I don't know there's something about for me anyway when he's like writing off at the movie's ending yeah and he'd be writing off well we'll see ya or maybe we won't 
<laughs> Where are you going? Got no idea, but I gotta go. And then he would just ride off, and then that corny kind of music. I'll follow the sun. I'll follow the sun. Duke, you got no food, no money, no rifle. I said I'm going. <laughs> How about then he come back? Did I get my rifle? <laughs> I forgot my pack. <laughs> Maybe a candy bar. Yeah. You have a dollar bill on you? <laughs> I tried to tell you, Duke. I could go for a Snickers. <laughs> I almost died in that canyon, but I came back. <laughs> we could switch to another character. I'm trying to think. I, I, think, I saw one movie where he died. I think there was another one. He died in the Alamo. Yes, and then Bruce, the Bruce, Bruce Dern killed Bruce Dern shot him, right? Yeah. And the shooters. The shooters. Yeah. His last movie. Yeah. We had Jimmy Stewart. Yeah. I got I got the cancer. <laughs> Remember that? Yeah. Yeah. You really want to know how this is going to end? Yeah, that was... Then he did one with Catherine Hepburn. That was like a sequel to... It was called Rooster Cogburn. Yeah. I could pound the shakiness out of that little lady. Was that a sequel to like <laughs> True Grit? Yes. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, I mean, just to for for the people listening, yeah, the greatest character ever created in the history of modern entertainment, in my opinion. Highly underrated. I'm trying to, I, you know, I just can't remember what the quintessential John Wayne movie would be. Well, that's when he was really good. I mean, that was kind of cool. The fun ones, I mean, the Green Berets is hysterical. Have you seen that recently? The Vietnam War one? That would be good. I think when he was older in the 60s where they were just, they were funnier. Yeah, I remember that turkey. Uh, Maybe Rio Bravo? Yeah, one of those mid-60s ones. Rio Bravo, the one with Dean Martin? Yeah, it was, was, he, was he in the War Wagon with Kirk Douglas, too? I think so. The War Wagon was cool. It's just neat, old-fashioned technology that was impenetrable, you know. That's three-quarters of an inch of solid oak. <laughs> you know, Kirk Douglas, how are we going to take down the War Wagon? <laughs> well, we don't take it down. We take it up. <laughs> what what does that mean? I don't know, but it sounded good when I said it. <laughs> we'll attack. Well, that dude, they've got, you know. Because it was like they had a posse with it. They had like 20 armed guns. Three quarter inch, you know, whatever. The guy, got, the guy says to Duke, yeah, you got any gold? He goes, no. Got any uh, silver? No. What do you got? He goes, I got some lead. He pulls that out and starts blasting away. Really? <laughs> the guys are all running and getting shot. So he off just starts horses. shooting. <laughs> Fantastic. I got some lead. It's on the simplicity of the of the, the Western now is just so nice too. Just the clarity. Yeah, there was good, there was bad. God, it'd be great to just see him on the set of a movie to see how he worked, you know? got along with anybody. Dick Cavett did a column for the New York Times and just said he was just a, kind of a sensitive, smart, well-read guy. Really? Yeah. Oh. Mm-hmm. And just could mention all these Shakespearean plays and everything. Huh. 
no one went bald in those days. You know, like the way Bruce Willis kind of cut his hair short. Yeah. They all had big, pretty obvious hair pieces. Oh, yeah, too. Yeah. Starting at some point. Um, Bogart had one. Jimmy Stewart. Henry Fonda. Really? I don't know when the, the transition was made. Well, that, was, that, was, that was the genius. You can keep your kind of your same look for like forty years. Camera, yeah, know, and if you're on TV, you know, on TV, there was no HD, so you could just look your right. wouldn't really age on TV. These follicles are jumping ship. Well, well, Duke, uh, maybe you should just go natural. I said, strap on my hair hat. <laughs> <laughs> but maybe you should just be yourself. I said, strap it on. I'm not going to ask you again. <laughs> but, Duke, we're on the back lot at Burbank. You're not a cow. We don't have weapons. I said, strap it on. <laughs> All right, Larry, tell some stories. I got nothing. I'm interested in your childhood. <laughs> have a, a bully in sixth grade? Did you win a talent competition? Did you, were you a straight-A student? Did you, it seemed like you'd be incredible at math, with your memory, but did, were you invisible? Were you the most popular kid in high school? No, we, I was really shy. We moved a lot. I hated that. I didn't have to get introduced in new classes every year. I started to get really reclusive around sixth grade, and I would just stay inside. I remember staying inside all summer, and I don't know, I would eat. My parents came home one day, and I was eating a baby Ruth and sucking honey out of a bottle, and I had a big Coke. Jeez. <laughs> How I was in a diabetic coma. <laughs> I, I just had this, like, intense sugar addiction. Did you but get I, really fat? Yeah, I got really fat, yeah. So I, Really fat in high school. I didn't lose it until I got out of high school. How did you lose all the weight? I went from. Uh, we used to have. Remember they had cokes in a twenty-four bottle, those wooden crates. Yeah. Like six-ounce bottles, twenty-four. I drink a crate of those a day. Jesus. So I decided I had to stop. And I went from. I went to wow. two cokes a day. Wow. Two cokes and then two small meals, and I lost 50 pounds in about three months. But I've always carried that fat image with me. Huh. Once you're fat, you always feel like you're always fat. Wow. I look like a beach ball with a head, mister. <laughs> well, again, you adapt the attitude. John Wayne's diet, diet clinic. I said lose it. <laughs> <laughs> Duke, I'm hungry. <laughs> Close your mouth and don't open it till you've lost it all. <laughs> now get out. John Wayne's Diet Clinic's open. You know, every major city. Forget Jenny Craig. John Wayne's Diet Clinic's on the way to go. <laughs> it really is. It's the anti-Oprah. I may have to introduce John Wayne. It's the, it's the ultimate not thinking too much. Just... It's uh, like, what was, you might remember this, what was the phrase to fuck up the British in World War II? It was sort of like, don't complain, keep moving forward. It was something more artistic than that. But it was, that was the motto of the population. Keep your head down. Oh, yeah. And Margaret Thatcher bemoaned things. People 
thinking about their feelings too much. You know, it's the kind of the Europe, the oh, British yeah. thing of just carry on. That was it. Stiff upper lip. Stiff upper lip, carry on. Yeah. Don't get into a whiny, complainy, you know, thing. Which is what we've become in this nation. My truth, my feelings. Quivering upper lips. Yes. What's the busiest you ever were in doing comedy in the city of how many gigs a night could you do when you're busy? Well, probably 84. I told Keo this last night that I kept a book of every set I did and uh, I burned them all. But 1984, I did 350 sets. So that's almost one a night. Wow. Was that your first year or second year? My third year of comedy. That's, that's when the boom started to take off where we were starting to make money. So you were getting booked like crazy because there were so you many clubs. You booked like crazy. You could do, plus you could do sets anywhere you wanted. All you Five sets in the city if you wanted to one night. Really? Five sets? Like, you can tell me. The other cafe, the zoo, cops, and there's a couple like you know, bars and comedy nights. Yeah, because all, uh, all those bars were jumping in. They're, wow, this is easy. Just put up a microphone. We can have comedy once a week. That was what the original cops are just a bar at Chester's. And why did you burn those things? Yeah, I shouldn't have. I had a I had a daily journal that I started January first, sixty eight. Wow! But then they turned the heat off in his apartment and he had to get warm. No, really? Why did you burn them? Well, I burned a bunch of them in the eighties, and it felt like it was kind of therapeutic. Then I burned everything up to two thousand. I got everything after two thousand. Now I kind of wish I kept them. I mean, did you write in your journal last night? Uh, yeah, I just put, uh, I put down how the sets went, and wow. So you write a little I'll story about... Couple, I'll put a couple of three lines about every day of the life I have. That's interesting. I just started doing that kind of late, though. You should. It's kind of... It gives you perspective. You know, it might be one reason I kind of get a remembering days, because... Yeah, that's true. Because you can associate around those... Yeah, I find I remember stuff if I write something down, I, I just automatically remember a lot of most every, everything. If I don't write anything down, I can't remember anything. Like how many times have you woken up with a funny joke or something, you don't write it down, and the morning you forget it, it's always gone. Yeah. It turns out I burned the diaries because it contained, quote, evidence. <laughs> Where they were. <laughs> Well, was your initial act kind of the, the stuff about, you know, your life having problems? No, it's my initial act was kind of... Uh, Bobby Bitter, right? Not not bitter. It was like uh, Carson. It was kind of observational, monologue-ish stuff. And it would be a little, kind of personal stuff. I remember my first five minutes were pretty much about what it was like moving from Ohio to San Francisco. The, uh, culture shock and all that. What would be a joke around that? Uh, I had a bunch of jokes about Ohio. I forgot what they were. I had a really bad joke. Got license plates have phrases on this, like California's the Golden State. What was that? Louisiana Sportsman's Paradise. Ohio, the trailer park state. <laughs> a lame joke. <laughs> well, we've got that weed joke. Anusville was taken, so they went. They called it weed. <laughs> Do you remember the first joke you did on stage? 
Um, I don't know if I did jokes. I, I did John Wayne having sex. Yeah. <laughs> well, my very first set, because it was just goofy. I go up against the bedpost and spread them. <laughs> Seriously. It's funny now. <laughs> it's when, when, so funny. <laughs> <laughs> He's basically raping someone. It's an awful joke. <laughs> You're going to like it. Then you yeah. threw what's-his-name out of the mix, right? With the... With John Wayne, right? Were you doing Walter Brennan? Walter Brennan yeah. having sex with John Wayne, or vice I, versa? Maybe. I th- that was some kind of famous radio thing. I later on did Burton Kirk, but right. I definitely I did like Howard Cosell. Um, kind of with the, but I'm sure Billy Crystal must have done. But I did it back in the, you know. Oh, look there, right there, and then very Barry Sobel asked me if he could use that. I was in New York doing one of the boys said fine that became his signature wow that, yeah that was yeah. that was one of the first bits I saw when I was hanging out at the punchline so while doing that because people were on the floor it was a good bit yeah um I did the x-rated rated Wizard of Oz that was my closer oh man that's right wow how'd that go I'd get hard and I'd have four play <laughs> <laughs> I'd even have some more play if I only had a dick <laughs> you know, and then the Tin Man was constipated. Oil my ass. Oil my ass. What'd he say? He said he wanted us to oil his ass. <laughs> oh, yeah. Bring us the witch's dildo. <laughs> yeah. Killing. Destruction. Out of their seats. Uh, yeah, it was, it was, you know, but I bombed a lot like anybody, but yeah. And then I, I had puppets and stuff. I had a puppet where I pre-recorded with a tape recorder his responses. Uh, Professor Reality was in a whole lot. Hi, hey, um, hi, Professor Reality. And then I would I had a foot switch, oh, yeah. and I, the recorder would come on and say, my friends call me real. And I said, oh, really? He said, no, real. <laughs> <laughs> And I did this whole act, you know, <laughs> with the puppet. Wow. Yeah. And later on, when I was starting to develop a little bit, I had a down vest with banana chips in it, and I had a flashlight. And I did a character called the Mountain Man. I at the, mountain. the mountains do funny things to a man. Ever uh, take an axe to your own crotch or something like that? Or, you know, have sex with a moose? I did. I remember Mike Boats Johnson and I when we were living in Seattle. I was in Seattle. He was in Portland. He was playing one week. We were trying to write spec SNL sketches. And I remember we, we said, well, Dana's on the show. Let's write some stuff for some of his characters. And we wrote a Mountain Man sketch. Oh. I actually got it on the show once, but I didn't really know how the show worked. And it was in the first season. And it just didn't, you know. Yeah. But it was a good catchphrase. Mountains do funny things to a man. And uh, who were who were some of your comic friends? Well, in the seventies, it was the Schuberts and Barry Sobel, the Schuber brothers, because um, they were the, around my age. Because you know, Lorenzo and those guys were like ten years older, eight years older. So Schuber, I'm trying to think of the seventies. I was kind of a loner in a sense because I was everyone was older. How did you? I'm surprised you didn't get picked for that uh, laughing revival. 
I auditioned for it at the Mustard Seed. I had a Star Trek bit, and I killed there. But then I went down. I talked to George Slaughter. I didn't get it. But my Star Trek bit, you know, and my William Shatner. That was something I did early on. There, a lot of people had Star Trek bits, of course. That was you had to have a Star Trek bit. Yeah, that was a time when Star Trek was flying fallow, right? It had been off yeah. the air for years. Yeah. It was just everyone kind of knew it. Yeah. So when, how, how soon after, how many sets did you do before you kind of felt like, okay, this is what I'm going to do? And, and I, I think I can do this. I'll make a living in this. Well, I started in March, and then... But you were able to do a lot of sets, right? There were a lot of open mics. Quite a few sets. I got by June. They would put on the the Holy Cities would put out a calendar, and they they would put out a comic at the end where they open mic nights. And my name made the calendar. I remember that was like a big deal to me. So that yeah. In September, I got my first paid gig. I made thirty dollars. So the scene, right, that you were in in like '83, it was just clubs everywhere, open mics everywhere. It was just a whole different and good audiences, right? Then, uh, you weren't just playing the comics. No, I mean, they were like, we're getting a big crowd. I mean, Tuesday night at the zoo, the place wasn't big, but it would be full generally. You started at 8, if you got on by 10.30, you would have a full house. And then January, so that's what, uh, nine, ten months later, I think, yeah. Uh, I think I realized this was going to be my, I actually started crying. <laughs> I realized, I think this is going to be my life. I got really emotional. Wow. Kind of like a Keo moment there. <laughs> Although I ran towards the light, <laughs> not away from the Letterman show. Or the... Well, in '78, like I was still in college and I'd won the comedy competition, but there was no gigs. There were just a weird party here and there, and um, yeah, there was no money. What did what did you get for winning the competition? Five hundred. Wow. But but I did. I got enough. I, I did some opening act stuff for 50 bucks at the old Waldorf, but it was horrible, you know? So the zoo was still basically, the Tuesday night at the zoo was still the just go-to. Yeah. I don't think I... Our comics tell me that opening for a band was like the worst gig in the world. You get booed off the stage. Oh, yeah. Absolute worst. Yeah. Because you were never built. It was, they never said there was going to be anybody opening. No. So the audience was all ready for music. And they're drinking and rock and roll. Yeah. God, that must have been horrible. It was. It wasn't until when you came up at the right time because the infrastructure had been laid and the renaissance had happened and the clubs were cooking. You know, you actually started at a good time. But you know, starting I, back then. It was the only thing that I timed in my life right was that, I guess. Billy Jay told me if it was Blue Oyster called the band. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Open for them at some I think some place called the Salarac. <laughs> the crowd got so angry they they were jumping up and down and shout, throwing shit and yelling in unison, "You suck! You suck!" Oh yeah, I was booed off, screamed at. Just, you'd get up and the whole crowd would be booing, just screaming, booing. Wasn't I think the Salarac <laughs> was one of those places that had like a cyclone fence around the stage. People throw crap at it. Was that San Jose? Yeah. They had a sign out front that said "No knives, no colors." Like you couldn't wear any gang stuff. Wow, that's gonna be a good gig. Yeah. 
When did your catchphrase, you know, Mwah, when did that come in? How that? What's the story of that? Well, I don't, uh, I don't like to shake hands with people. So for some reason, when I when I meet people, I just kind of point my finger at me and go, Mwah. <laughs> I'll do that. Then one night, like it was May of '99, I did it. Tommy G's, I, I did it on stage. It went Mwah. Like for some reason, the crowd just went insane. So I just started beating it into the ground ever since then. Well, to me, it's, it's, uh, I don't even know. I, well, I think it's like, if you do a sad sack joke, like then the girl did whatever, and you literally went, womp, womp, womp. To me, it's a version of that, an abridged version. That's why it's brilliant. Oh, really? really? Yeah. I think it's like, it's like, and then, and then I lost the woman. Oh, I didn't have sex. It's almost like, <laughs> womp, womp, womp. Yeah. That's funny. You should actually try just for fun, do one where you do a threesome, like, womp, womp. <laughs> It's like it's like a soundtrack to the rhythm of your to the that's, that's to the motif of your joke. Yeah, yeah, at least that's how I always saw it. Womp, womp, womp. I don't know. People seem to like it. I, I said, well, oh, you're, it's like you're crying in a funny way. It's like you're complaining, like like oh, I got fucked. I think I think the face, the facial, is kind of very like that too. Yeah. When I was crossing the street in Oakland a couple years ago, this van rolls by. Three guys I don't know, they stick their heads out the window. They all go, Mrrr. Well, I always, you know, to me, like famous. inexplicability, if there's no joke, then it can last forever. It's like chopped broccoli or something. You know, it's like, Mrrr. They're going to never get tired of that. Because there's no... It doesn't mean itself. It doesn't... Yeah, and it's just funnier the hundredth time. I mean, I could hear you do it on stage tonight, and it would just be <laughs> funny as hell because it's. Uh, I should market it as a ringtone. <laughs> Definitely, yeah. I mean, the, you know, that's one. There was. It's a really profound thing. This thing when people something bad happens in life and, and they're afraid to cry, so they just go like this. They go like that. And this is like a funny version of that. You're kind of going to the audience. That's <laughs> like a shrug, like, a verbal Man. shrug. You know, like, I got screwed. <laughs> no. Yeah, I never thought of that way. Yeah, it is what it is. <laughs> but you started out using it different if it's like, Man. so I don't know. But at least on stage. But yeah, you, you, the, yeah, you idiot, that is your testicle. Man. <laughs> <laughs> Because <laughs> I wonder if you did some positive joke like you won the lottery, would it get the same laugh or you know what I mean? I won ten million dollars. Well, yeah, maybe it would have its own interpretation. Maybe it maybe it does something positive would have maybe a slightly different inflection to it. Yeah, I was doing this thing on the web when I was with on and Paul Wright had our little company and it was um it was sort of like an F troop kind of thing. Because to me, that's like, like I'm really going to try, and then it goes down as hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> that's, you know, just the yeah. funny. That just says what life is about. Yeah, like, here we go. High hope. Yeah. yeah, we're going to Reading, and just, you know, the car just goes. <laughs> <laughs> that's life. You can use that if you want, Larry. That might be a... <laughs> yeah. So there you have 
just part uh, part of our chat on the road. There's actually a lot more audio, and uh, I'll see what else is worthwhile. Try and clean some more up for you in a future episode. But uh, I thought that was a pretty representative of uh, how three guys spend some time uh, driving a, a few hundred miles. <laughs> There's uh, filmmakers in San Francisco doing a documentary about comedy here, starting back in the '80s, and their focus is Larry Brown, our own Will Durst, and local boy Johnny Steele. They've all been doing stand-up in town for over 30 years, so uh, that's what the documentary is sort of about. And uh, we did some recording on the drive for that documentary. So part of what you heard there may end up uh, on on uh, film, or they don't use film anymore, yeah, in the video. I'll let you know more if any of that shows up. By the way, Dana Carvey just started tweeting. Not very frequently, but they are getting out there. So you can track him down at Dana Carvey. How hard can that be? Hey, gang. It's the tycoon of comedy, Michael Powell, from the Comedy Buffet, and you're listening to Succotash, now available in Hirschtone. Groovy. Uh, it is time for our friend Will Durst in our Bursto Durst, and this time around, raging moderate Will Durst has a word or two about politicians and scandals. Hey guys, Will Durst here with a few choice words about second acts. F. Scott Fitzgerald said there weren't any in American lives, but I'm not sure he was aware of the loophole large enough to taxi a C-130 through that exists for American politicians. These people are more limber than a deboned eel, as can be evidenced by their reaction to disgrace. Now your ordinary scandalized citizen will burrow deep into a hidey hole, pulling the hole back in on them. Not politicians. They hold press conferences to declare all accusations baseless, then resign to spend more time with their family. Of course, nobody gets to ask the family how they feel. Sometimes the smiles are so tight you can hear enamel cracking. Now, once enough time passes, the politicians will declare their sabbaticals at an end and head up the comeback trail. All is forgiven, and the practice hypocrisy reels back out in a tail-sucking Mobius loop. Recently, a veritable gaggle of disgraced politicians jumped back into the spotlight. Perhaps you remember the unfortunately named Anthony Weiner, currently running for mayor in New York City. Now, Weiner announced a 64-part plan to keep New York vibrant, and he used Twitter to do it. Seriously, dude, do you really want to remind people the source of your crotch shots? Not sure his atonement has fully ripened. The National Republican Congressional Committee pulled support of Mark Sanford's bid to reclaim his congressional seat after his wife accused him of defying divorce settlement terms, prompting Sanford to take out a full-page ad explaining why he trespassed on his wife's property during the Super Bowl. Seeing a candidate treatise entitled, Why I Trespassed, Never good. No. Former CIA director David Petraeus just nabbed a gig as visiting professor at City College in New York, presumably talking about the dangers of having an affair with someone reasonably positioned to finagle a book deal. Meanwhile, Larry Craig lurks, still battling that pesky, restless leg syndrome and simply wanting to return to some anonymous airport men's room stall. For Suckatash, the podcast of comedy podcasts, I'm Will Durst. Oh, man. All right, there's Epi 58 all put together for you and put to bed. Next time, we'll have more clips and maybe a mini interview. Uh, I'm going to see if that's going to come together. I'd hate to promise you something but not deliver on it again. So until next time, please remember to pass the Suckatash. 
You've been listening to Suckatash, the comedy podcast podcast with your host, Mark Hershon. Brought to you by Henderson's Pads. And imagine your company's name right here. Find us on the web at SuckatashShow.com, on iTunes, or on Stitcher Smart Radio. You can also like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at Suckatash Show, email us at marc at SuckatashShow.com, or call into the Suckatash hotline at our toll call number 818-921-7212. That number again is 818-921-7212. Suckatash is produced and engineered by Joe Paulino through the auspices of Studio P. Sausalito, the home of the hit. Our musical director is Scott Carvey. Our booth assistant is Kenny Durges. Until next time, I'm your loyal booth announcer, Bill Haywatt, reminding you to please pass the succotash. Goodbye. Hey there, and welcome to No Recipe Required. One of my, uh, one of my favorite ways to um, use vegetables is in kind of succotashes, where we just kind of mix a whole bunch of uh, different vegetables together. It's great for seasonal vegetables because you can kind of throw whatever's in season along with maybe a potato and, uh, and you've got a great base for fish, for pork chops, for beef, for whatever you want. In this uh, recipe I'm going to show you how to do a pea, corn, and potato succotash. A little bit of herb in there, some, uh, some uh, chicken stock will make kind of a broth. Makes an absolutely perfect base for, like I said, chicken, pork, fish, anything you want. Let's go ahead and get started. It's time to start our succotash. I've just got a little bit of um, uh, shallot and garlic there. You can obviously use onion if you'd like. Medium hot pan. I've got an ear of corn that I'm going to add as well, along with a little bit of salt and pepper. Now I'm just going to let this cook down for a few minutes until um, the shallots soften up. And then we'll come back, add a few more ingredients. Okay, my corn. Shallots and garlic have just cooked down a little bit. I've got some potatoes, which I diced up and blanched until just barely tender. I'm going to add those in. And then for some color, I've got some nice frozen peas here. I think frozen peas are pretty good. Um, you know, it's certainly easier than fresh and peeling all those, all those peas yourself. Um, you know what would be awesome in here is like fava beans in the spring um, would be absolutely awesome. I've got a little bit of thyme here. I'm going to put a pinch in. Now I've also, again, seasoning, because we added those potatoes and the uh, peas. I'm going to add a little bit more salt, a little bit more pepper. I'm just going to let these all come up to temperature. Give it a quick toss. And um, in just a minute, once everything kind of comes to temperature, we start cooking the peas. I'm going to add a little bit of chicken stock just to uh, make a little bit of a sauce here. And we are uh, we're essentially done. For our succotash, I've got uh, you know everything up to temperature now. I'm just going to add about a cup, maybe three quarters of a cup of uh, chicken stock. I'm just going to bring that up to the boil and let the uh, let the chicken stock reduce by half. And this is essentially going to become a uh, you know nice sauce to lay the uh, pork chop right on. One final step for our succotash. I'm going to turn the heat either all the way down or even off completely is fine. Hit it with a uh, little knob of butter and let that melt in and that's just going to make that sauce, that broth, a little richer and um, obviously a little bit more flavorful. And we are ready to go. Once our sauce is done, we'll go ahead and plate this up. Okay, let's go ahead and plate up our pork 
Uh, and summer succotash or corn succotash. I like to drop it right in the middle of the plate like that. And then um, we've got our pork chop. And lay this a little off center. And then of course our wonderful sauce here, olive and fig. Go a little bit right on top. A little bit all around the plate. And we've got a great pork meal. I'll see you next time on No Recipe Required.